I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George Demarellis. This is a show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show, we have an international expert on prose poetry, as well as a critic and scholar of the form. She's a visiting scholar in English at Harvard University, as well as a visiting fellow at Sophia University in Tokyo, and is currently an associate professor at Deakin University. Cassandra Atherton, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. You know, I love to talk about prose poetry. So if uh, you give me the opportunity to do that, I could run on for days. Yeah, because you write it yourself as well as, I guess, critiquing it or analyzing it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I analyze it as well as um, being a practitioner, practitioner, because I think that they both feed into one another. Like, I think you've got to do it to be able to analyze it as well. 100%. That's actually (laughs) the reason I tried to improve my cooking. (laughs) (laughs) I love cooking. Oh, that's yeah, the same thing. You can't have any idea until you've done it yourself, I reckon. But, um, that's, no, that's cool. So this is like, uh, I mean, first, thanks for being on. But I guess this is like going to be quite informative for me because I'll be honest, my prose poetry knowledge is, I reckon, lacking. <laughs> so you could teach me a lot. That's good. That's a good place to start from. I like to convert all people to prose poetry. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess, uh, so prose poetry. Mm-hmm. To what go is straight it? To the big That's topic. what you're gonna say, right? What is it? <laughs> no, no, no. I was gonna. I was gonna. Yeah, okay. No, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, I think that it's a good question because there's huge debates about it. So you're not far wrong. Even um, even if you think you don't know that much about prose poetry, you're still gonna ask the same questions that's going on in scholarship about the form. I think the easiest thing to say is that it's a poem that's written in sentences and paragraphs rather than in lines and stanzas. But that, that's kind of oversimplifying things in a way. One of the things I love about it, you know, is this box shape on the page. So most prose poems have that fully justified box and set against the white page or the screen or whatever you're writing on. And, um, it, you know, it's being compared to a little brick, you know, because it can really make an impact. It's being compared to a number of quotidian sort of boxes, you know, like pillows and um, cheese graters and all kinds of things that seem to be part of everyday experience. And I think that's because it connects a lot with the fact that we write in sentences. So we see sentences around us everywhere all day. Um, We don't necessarily think of them as, as poetry. So not only does the block of text kind of look uh, approachable, that's one of the reasons that I kind of love it, especially if I'm teaching it, because students will often say, oh, I hate poetry, I don't understand it. So you kind of give them a prose poem. They don't think it's a poem. They start reading it and then they get halfway through and they're like, oh, no, it's a poem. You tricked me. Um, but then they finish it and then they like it and they talk about it. So somehow that block on the page is less confronting for a reader in many ways. Um, 
but you know, it's it's a considered a fragment. It reaches beyond itself to take on meaning. It's compressed. Um, women have talked about the box, the prose poetry box, being great to talk about. You know, the constraints of um, you know domesticity and exploding from the box, and all of those kinds of wonderful metaphors about being confined and being liberated. So. You know, it packs a pretty big punch for a little block of text on the page. Right. Okay. So I, I didn't even know the, the specification of the box shape. That's interesting already. That's a yeah. And and it could be anything, right? Like as in the topics and the whatever. It's just yeah. anything. Is that? Yep. Absolutely. So some. So there is some variety that's going on now. Where um, I prefer the ones that are fully justified. So they have that perfect sort of margin the whole way around. Um, some people prefer to keep their right margin ragged as a way of sort of talking about the 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 way that things are kind of connected to other things and not perfectly um, and seamlessly put together, if you like. There are what's called freeline poems, prose poems, where they have uh, little moments where there are sentences that are on their own and sort of drag the box into like a larger space. So, but they're all, for me, they're all different ways of expressing the box. Like they all come back to the box. Um, so uh, that's, that's sort of where it comes from, I think, in terms of the experimentation. But one of the things I like about it, because it really is quite approachable, people can write either really darkly comic things in there, and the Americans are great at doing that, that kind of neo-surreal tradition of being, you know, really funny, or you can actually write quite political things in there because people wade into them before they realise and um, and the fact they're easily disseminated and that you might get a broader audience reading them because they're not identifying them as poems straight away. So, you know, people lobby for all kinds of things in prose poetry. So it's right. it. And people have called it a subversive form. Hmm. Uh, so I think it can be read like that. Right. And did you, um, like, I guess to go... For you, did you always like it, or did you develop there slowly, or how was you, how was you? How did your relationship with prose poetry start? I started writing it before I really knew what I was doing. So I was in my teens, and I'd write little fragments of things, and I'd prefer to write in sentences rather than if I thought I was writing a poem, you know, to write in lines that sort of stopped before the right margin. And then um, I didn't quite know what to do because no one would invite me to things because they didn't know that what I was writing some people would say oh sorry you're writing fiction so you should go hang out with the fiction writers and then the fiction writers would say no look you know I think this is poetry you know we don't want you here either so for a long time for many years for a decade um I ping-ponged between the two and when I submitted prose poetry to journals I'd often have the editor say oh no this isn't poetry send it to the fiction editor and then the fiction editor would say oh no you should send it to the poetry editor and you'd be like well just done that so I think it took a while in Australia for it to really proliferate but it's having just the most huge renaissance at the moment most poetry books in Australia that you open will have at least one prose poem and we're getting whole books of prose poetry as well now which is exciting. Yeah, I mean, because it, it it seems almost uh, like uh, it, it's funny, like the details and stuff you're talking about as well. Because like to people outside of it, they'll be like, "What? It's yeah. like ragged lines, and that's the whole thing." But like, I that's like yeah. obviously that's a big detail. But like the part that I think is interesting is it seems like such an obvious, um, like from what you've described, like idea essentially, because you, you are taking the 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 focus on language and the beauty of words, essentially, of what I would consider poetry and the and the use of imagery and visuals so like very it's a concise system of writing essentially and just doing it in prose form instead of rhyming so it doesn't seem that 
No, yeah. I think it's I think it's challenging because there's quite an elitist attitude to those lines that stop before the right margin. You know, they have a they have a weightiness about them because they have all this space around them, and we read them differently, and we even read them sometimes in quite an elevated, you know, poetry launchy kind of voice. Um, whereas the thing I like about prose poetry is that it says that there is you know poetic ways of speaking that don't have to be elevated. It's just the the speech we use every day has its own rhythm and cadence. It's a different one um, from a lot of lineated poetry, but it's an important one. You know, we're denying the poetic of kind of speaking to one another if we if we think that it can't be expressed in any way except, you know, um, you know, through short stories or through creative nonfiction or through other forms. Um, poetry is allowed to speak about the everyday and it's allowed to do it in sentences and paragraphs. Yeah, that's. I guess that's a part which, I mean, people are just like... <laughs> What is it then? Like, is it? It's, not, it's just yeah. talking. Like, is it? So, I, I, I could see how people would fall into that a little bit. But I think, and this is something I've, because I came to poetry quite late and I still am, got no idea, essentially. But, um, <laughs> you don't sound like you're faking it so well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, that's the thing. I've learned, I'm doing the opposite. Rather than doing it, I'm just like trying to learn enough to get by, just to fake it in <laughs> fake the right it till you make it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've memorized a few quatrains. I think I'm covered. <laughs> He's always throwing a quatrain. It's very convincing. Exactly. That's but um the so that's why I've like I I get those people because I've kind of come into the same way, which is yeah. like, and it's something I've been very late, and I've discussed with actually a previous guest as well. It's like when I read, a lot of the time I don't have that kind of laser focus on the use of words, which I think I've I'm slowly appreciating more and more just how deep that well is <laughs> like never yeah. ending that is once you start being like oh this this word because this letter actually this duh goes with this word over here yeah. this, like in that level of detail is like just crazy to me yeah yeah That's- <laughs> it's true it depends what you're reading too though I think I usually say to my students when they're reading any form of poetry that it takes about you know, the same time as it would take to read a paragraph in a novel to understand one line of poetry, not to just read it in one second and think that they'll get it or, you know, that it's not perhaps difficult or a bit opaque to begin with. And once you kind of tell them they've got to put in the time and slow down, then it becomes a little bit easier, I think, and less confronting because I think they read it and they're like, I don't get it, I don't get it. And you're like, that's okay, you read it in 30 seconds. I wouldn't expect you to get it all. So it's sort of about a different way of reading, I think, than um, than reading prose fiction or um, or even nonfiction. Yeah, 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 because the focus is just kind of completely different, I guess. It's, yeah, it, it is that thing where it's like it's taking. I guess now I'm thinking about it, it is more like turning. It's the art version. It's almost like a painting. You don't, <laughs> you don't just scan a painting and then move on. You actually sit there and you're meant to just look at it for a while to take it all in. So I guess in yeah. that sense. Uh, so yeah, so I got, so, so that's interesting though. So you're saying that you would like kind of. Um, there wasn't that space that much in Australia. Is that because Australia, and I'm look, we could be honest, probably Australia was probably a bit behind some other places around <laughs> the world. Australia sort of developed it in the kind of 70s with a lot of the men in universities who were informed sometimes by the Americans, sometimes by what was going on in Europe. And they started off by calling it poetic prose, which for me is quite different because poetic prose isn't poetry. It's, it's you know, prose but it's it's a poetic way of responding and poetic prose is often quite long there's a there, okay so there's huge punch-ons in the prose poetry well based on right, how long Love a this. prose poetry should be right so yeah. so yeah 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 it's 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 pretty pretty insane some people argue that it's you know a prose poem can be 
you know, a few pages more longer. John Ashbury's three poems are quite prose poems are quite long. Um, we would say that prose poetry really needs to be no more than one page because the visual of it is really important. And if you have to turn the page, then you're losing that compression and that initial response to it visually as well as being able to read it. But yeah, I mean, that's there's endless conversations and arguments uh, about it. But that's where I come from on that. But yeah, so it's it's about the guys who decided that they wanted to sort of start a tradition in Australia by writing poetic prose or prose pieces, sometimes they were calling them. And it sort of developed from from there a little bit. And then one of our best proponents, I guess, was um, Gary Catalano, who was really devoted to the form. And he wrote whole books of um, prose poetry. And that sort of was quite exciting. And then, of oh. course, there were so many women. So then there's this been huge uh, input by Australian women prose poets who in many ways I think were more important than the men for what they did and how they experimented with uh, the box of prose poetry. So Joanne Burns obviously is a pretty incredible person who explores quite a lot about prose poetry and hybrid forms and inside the box and outside the box. She's always working in these kinds of traditions of prose poetry and, and looking at sort of gendered responses to them as well. Um, Anna Kawani. There's a range of really amazing. Anya Volvich, who sadly died um, not so long ago, you know, she also had her own unique style with prose poetry and, and these women kind of shook up what was happening with poetic prose and po prose pieces and they're like, no, this is prose poetry and we're writing it and, you know, we're going to keep the tradition going and take it take it further than it has been. So with someone like that, when you say they've come in and done that, um, do you mean that both in terms of like – this is me not understanding how, <laughs> how it all works, no, no, but like in terms of the language used in it or more in terms of the topic and the structure of it or also just in terms of the actual way they shaped the sentences, I guess. Like, I don't know. What, is that what you mean? I think So I think what they did was they decisively said it's prose poetry and that um, Australians had to, the you know, largely, and they were mostly men who were writing prose pieces or poetic prose, and they said, no, this is prose poetry. There's a tradition of prose poetry we're writing into. We acknowledge who they were. I mean, obviously, the French tradition, we would say, is the most important obviously. tradition. Of course. Of course, the French <laughs> do it well and do it first. I've got no is. idea about that. But it's nice no, no. <laughs> no um, so the French, the French started it. Well, the French were just like, you know what? Um, speech can be beautiful and sentences can be beautiful and poetic. And we're ignoring the rebellion that we can put in place with the verse lineated poetry so we can write something different that's going to shake people up so they sort of looked at prose poetry as being rebellious that they would they were saying i'm writing poetry but it's in sentences and people like oh, i don't know about that and they're like yeah read it it's poetry and when you read it yeah it is poetry so they i mean so baudelaire started that with paris spleen so he kind of walked around the city and he wrote about the city he wrote it in these little paragraphs and um, it's clearly poetry and it's really poetic. And so the, the tradition generally stems from there. And How, how long ago was that? Yeah. So, um, so you're looking, 1869 is when Baudelaire started it, but he kind of took from this guy called Aloysius Bertrand who uh, wrote what's considered to be the first lot of prose poetry in 1842. So I really feel pretty like, long time ago. <laughs> I really feel like your voice almost changed into like teacher mode. You're like and this, mode. the history yeah. of prose poetry is as follows. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So, so this, so a lot of Australians, were, I guess, sort of saying, "Oh, not really sure what we're doing," 
and a lot of the women sort of came into that circle and said, we're working with this form that has all of these really interesting ways of expressing themselves. Let's not avoid calling them uh, poems. Let's call them prose poems. I mean, there were that's that's a generalization. There were some women who went along with it and said, you know, still call them prose pieces or poetic prose. But I think a lot of the revolution of prose poetry and its advancement, if you like, because it was sort of going around in circles and people were writing these things and no one really knew what they were. And I think, you know, there were sort of women who injected themselves into this um, this moment in time and really got it going and really established yeah. what it was and gave it gave it its shape and its form and, yeah, the kinds of things that it would express. Um, yeah, they defined it and then made it actually able to be part of the even larger global conversation. Absolutely, and to let yeah. people join in and then be like, right, who's writing now? Who's going to write after us or with us or continue the tradition and how will it change and those sorts of things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, uh, fair enough. That's interesting. <laughs> that's, <laughs> it's exciting. Uh, yeah. It's actually exciting to see. I just want to know, if I was going to be like, what's the most famous prose po- poem? What's like the most famous, I guess? The most famous Australian poem? prose poem? Yeah. Um... Oh, or the goodness. biggest, however you want to phrase it, or the best. Look, probably you the can be one totally that, biased. No, I can be totally biased. I'd say um, Anya Valvich wrote. Um, my, she wrote two really significant ones, and they're often taught in secondary schools, so people know them. And I'm getting excited that students are coming through and they have encountered the prose poem largely through Volvich. Um, she's written a really cheeky one about Little Red Riding Hood. That is, um, that's that's quite feminist and and Little Red Riding Hood gets her own back at the end. But she's also written one about being an immigrant and coming to Australia, which um, which talks about, you know, she says, Australia, you big ugly, um, you know, you, you weren't, you didn't invite us into the country, you weren't, you know, all of those kinds of really difficult uh, processes of, of finding and making a new life in a country are brought to the fore in, what is a really amusing way, but at the same time a really devastating way too. Um, and so there are a lot of criticisms in that. So, yeah, I mean, those two Anya Volvich poems would probably be the most the most well-known ones, the most pithy ones, I guess. Okay. So I'm just trying to find one that I can memorise and then look like I know all prose poetry. <laughs> That's it. We, the Little Red writing one's quite short, so I think it's called Perfect. Little Red. Yeah. Little Red? I'll yeah. look it up. Um, so I guess, uh, so to go back to your, uh, your journey, I guess, as part of this, you, so you, you liked it, you like even in adolescence, and then you went to university, yeah. I'm guessing you studied English or something like that, and then you- Yeah, I did, yeah. Um, but this was always in the back of your mind, this is the focus you wanted to go in this direction? Yeah, like even at university, there wasn't really anyone writing um, prose poetry. I had my supervisor, I had um, Chris Wallace Crabb, the Australian poet Chris Wallace Crabb, in my second year in my undergraduate, um, I did li- literature and creative writing. And so he, he taught me and he has written one of the first kind of prose poems as well, but um, but didn't, I sort of came to the history of prose poetry, I guess, myself rather than through anyone in the university system. I st- look, I still felt a little bit like I was eccentric for writing prose poetry um, at the time. So I didn't I didn't have so many prose poetry buddies to get together and, you know, have sleepovers and that kind of thing. Um, it was more a feeling that because I didn't fit, I had to find out what was going on because, you know, because nothing is new or original. Someone's always done it first. So I didn't think, oh, I've created this new form. It's like, where are all these people that must have written this in varying, you know, forms? And, you know, it it sort of just took a a while. So, um, yeah, so I was sort of submitting prose poetry as part of my creative writing degree and I was 
um, writing about prose poetry and my literature degree and, and those sorts of things, but I wasn't sort of putting it together in my own life and being able to kind of find other Australians writing writing prose poetry. I think it's much easier now. You know, I think it's a, a lot a lot easier now. Um, but but back then it still seemed a little bit like the poets weren't that invested in prose poetry because it was too quotidian or because it used the sentence or because there was snobbery attached to it. I still think there's snobbery attached to it. I think um, there's a lot of people who think that, you know, lineated poetry is real poetry or verse is real poetry and prose poetry is just something else, you know. Yeah, that's... It seems it's, people still do that. Yeah, <laughs> I, thought that was, I thought that stuff would have been done by now. Everyone. No, you know what they've said: prose poetry in a uh, not prose poetry. They've said in Australia, um, the poetry community, you know, can, is quite can be quite difficult, and it's almost like a a knife fight in a telephone box. And uh, you know, I have to say, like, it can be. You know, it can be pretty full on because it's quite a small kind of passionate community with everyone yeah. sort of fighting for what they want and different schools of thought on things and different people allied to people. So. Yeah, it's a bit confronting. I, I it sounds like I know I don't want to be making if it sounds because it sounds like you've gone through some stuff with it, but it's just amazing. Anyone outside of it would be like, "What the poetry community is cutthroat?" <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> like a knife fight in a telephone box. What? Yeah, <laughs> like, <it's full> <laughs> yeah um, there's. It's. I think we like to think we're more important than we are as well. I think. I think. Look, I think all poets are a little bit narcissistic. So, yeah, you know, it's like my words will change the world. <laughs> yeah, and it's like they're in this, you know, I should say we because I'm part of it, but, you know, we think we're in this kind of, you know, important field and we are, but there's also a certain amount of being in a, a, a rose-coloured bubble maybe where we think everybody's on board in the same way that we are. And especially because I'm guessing uh, like every field um, – you're interacting mainly with people within that field. So like, like how important are we? Oh, we are pretty important. <laughs> yeah, we're like so important. We're writing poetry books and people are reading them. Yeah, largely other poets are reading poetry books <laughs> yeah. rather than, you know, them setting the world on fire um, yeah. and reaching a really broad audience, which would be nice to think that we could. I mean, um, Amanda Gorman, for instance, you know, in her reading the poem at um, – both the super right, reading a poem both at the Super Bowl um, and as part of the you know presidential campaign is huge and oh, yeah, I yeah. think that's what people think oh poetry is relevant and it is it's just it there are very few of those moments where it reaches <laughs> you know a massive public. where yeah everyone else hears the word poem and they're like what <laughs> yeah I'll just go get a drink <laughs> yeah. you know, oh the poem they will turn it over <laughs> it's like a commercial maybe on TV. Uh, yeah, like because like, the logic of it is sound. Like, I mean, ultimately, I mean, um, language. It's like like everyone like it's yeah. beautiful and it's so powerful. Yeah. It's what we all interact with. So it makes sense why it would have appeal. I think, but uh, I, I love it just because um, I think the importance of a topic we can all fall into the trait in whatever we're in of trying to make it the most important thing in the world. But it's like the most important thing is if you're loving it and you're focused on it. That's yeah, it's the big thing. That's why I'm so interested in. Definitely. And I think w with poetry, you know, even people who say they don't enjoy poetry or they don't understand it, well, most of the weddings and funerals I go to, they read poetry. And when we have these huge catastrophic, you know, moments in time, like think about 9-11, all the poetry that came out of, you know, the tragedy of 9-11 and the poetry that comes out of any very emotional period, people, people turn to poetry. They don't so much, you know, get to write a novel I mean those those come with time but it's the intense kind of um compression and the way that the expression and emotion speaks to people in these you know hugely important times in their life that they that they want that they want to recite and learn and carry with them
That's actually a very, very good point. Like as in it's a, <laughs> like as in it, you want it to be something short. Well, again, it's it's going back to the idea of like the art, like painting or something like that. It's like, it's capturing that moment and just that. So you can't, <laughs> I guess it's almost like being like, oh, why would you have a, why do you do paintings when you can watch a movie? Like as in, yeah. they're just so completely different. Exactly. And the one just captures that snapshot, I guess, much better because of its that shortness moment. essentially. Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. often, you know, something that you can, that will reach larger audiences. I mean, I'm so focused on audience because I would like prose, I would like prose poetry in particular to, to have a huge, huge audience and appeal. But but poetry, because it can often be quite short, um, is often on social media. And that's great. If someone puts something up on social media, a, you know, a photo of a poem or a, um, has typed out part of a poem or a prose poem, then it reaches a broader appeal. Even if people don't read it, they catch something of it and starts to become a little bit more kind of normalized as part of everyday life, which is which is how I would like it to continue to proliferate. So that's um so I it's I got into that with your uh it's funny because from your description you were like you had a very, very small audience when you first started out of just you. That's <laughs> it, just me on my own <laughs> writing so, prose poem. I think um yeah, what people just seem to be writing, you know a range of more kind of formal poetry. I was came through in a class that was more interested in writing things like sonnets, which are so hard to write and so um, are their own little it's box like on the page. It's like they don't want anyone well. to read it. <laughs> well, I mean, sonnets are, sonnets are hard things to, um, to do well in a contemporary moment too, I think, because we think about Shakespeare and we think of, you know, courtly love and all of those things. But, um, but there have been some really fantastic your reinterpretations there's also prose poem sonnets which are a little bit contentious because it's like well do you count the number of sentences as equivalent to the number of lines in a sonnet or is it um how they appear on the page because you know it's not necessarily one sentence to a line so they run across so is it is it counting the spaces on the page anyway there's people have had a, a lot love, of different goes at it yeah this is so amazing like <laughs> detail most people would just not even think about with something like That's this because it. it's how you can appreciate something more i think um <laughs> to go life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Oh, actually, to that point, though, like uh, in terms of I, like for me to cut and grasp it. So with you, when you're writing it, yeah, um, we are jumping around a bit, but like just, just pops right. into my head. When you're writing it, do you like start off with a topic you want to do, or do you? I, yeah, like how long? How long would one take? I guess, and and what's involved oh, in it? Oh gosh, look, I've got friends that um, smash them out in like seven minutes on their iPhones, and they can be fantastic. I think everyone's different. I'm slow. I'm a slow writer. I'm a slow in terms of how long it takes me to get something I'm really happy with. I think generally what happens is a line, you know, an idea for for something will pop into my head and then I'll sort of create a sentence out of it. It might just be a little fragment of an idea and then a sentence comes to me that fits beautifully. Often it's the first line. For me personally, I struggle more with the final line. So the final line in a prose poem is so important, right? It's the last thing someone reads and it has to really open out rather than shut itself down. So you're looking for that moment that is like a balloon sort of taking off rather than it being a, I don't know, stone dropped in a in a river. Like it's sort yeah. of got to have more meaning that you can think about it long after you've finished reading it than mm. to sort of close it all off or close it all down. Um, and so those end moments take me longer to think through. So usually, yeah, usually just starting from that one idea, whether it's um, so once I, I was obsessed with getting a red Smeg fridge. It was a real desire of mine and a few people had said, that's a really crazy dream for you to have. And so I thought, yeah, I guess it is. I might write a prose poem. So it's those, I think often the quirky things kind <laughs> yeah. of feel like prose poems when someone says to you, that's a bit odd. And you think, oh, well, maybe there's a prose poem in that. <laughs> yes. um, prose poetry can be anything, any topic. It can be about Louisiana hot sauce or it can be about, you know, um, uh, you know, oppression, or it can be about yeah. something in the newspaper. Literally, yeah. Okay. Um, that's, yeah. <laughs> well, let, let, let's actually let's go into the book you've chosen because I'm guessing for that we'll be able to jump around anyway. Oh um, yeah, yeah. So uh, your book of choice for today is Irradiated Cities by Mariko Nagai, mm. and I love it because it's very different. It uses a range of colons in ways that suggest that things are connected and yet they're also separated. And so they're both joined and fragmented, even as you're even as you're reading kind of these moments. And it is it is a book that has black and white photographs in it. And Nagai uses four cities in Japan that have been affected by radiation to comment um, largely on the world before and after the atomic bomb. And yeah. I'm. Um, it sounds terrible to say I'm interested in in the atomic bomb, but it's it's been a, a macabre, I guess, interest in a way, um, learning and going. I've been to Hiroshima quite a lot and learning from Habakusha how important it is that poets and creative people are able to talk about it in their work because we don't want anyone to forget the devastation of atomic warfare. And I think it's Mariko Nagai does it so incredibly well because there's so many things I think you can do wrong with it. You can fall into appropriation. You can be perhaps too lighthearted. You could perhaps even be too dark about it all. But Nagai finds a way of using all kinds of archival material and newspapers to take fragments from real people, from their words and their thoughts and their ideas, and puts them into prose poetry that has these, yeah, little symbols. She, She uses quite a lot of brackets, but her main... Uh, point is using colons to talk about fracture and rupture and how the world can never quite be the same since that moment. It's really right. powerful. 
No, that's a, I love already even your description there. It's like, I'm so glad you did that because I probably, if I'd read it, I'd be like, what's all these colons? Yeah. <laughs> Just skim past it. So exactly. I like being able to appreciate it more. Yeah. Um, the, so is that because, um, yeah, it was the nuclear devastation, which is, a, like, I don't think it's weird at all to be fascinated by it. It's probably the most defining feature. It changed the world. Like, it's very rare yes. something changes yeah. the world so definitively. Yeah. And there's like such a clear moment like that, that the bomb dropping, like as in, it's just, yeah. it's a completely different world after that. Like that's the end of world war two. And it's kind of the end of world wars in the way that they were. It is. It is. And then you can't believe when you hear things like, you know, Trump, when Trump was in power in particular, you know, we were hearing about his, uh, inclination to use, to push the button, to, you know, use the atomic bomb again. And you just feel like, with all of the information now that we have that's so devastating about what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in particular, you just can't imagine anyone would, would even think about going there. Yeah, it's, um, look, I think anything, yeah. I, uh, funnily enough, I've just, just listened to, finished listening to um, this podcast I listened to. It's called Hardcore History. Yeah. And he just did a, a five-part, it's about 20-hour series on um, the entire Japanese expansion um, yeah. And then shrinking over the course yeah. from like 1930s until 1945. And there is an element in there where like he's trying to be as like neutral about as possible in terms of like trying to be like not trying to defend it, but also trying to be like I can see putting all the factors in place from a historical perspective of why yeah. it happened essentially mm -hmm. and why the bomb got dropped and how it was like it wasn't a like to completely get you to understand why that decision was made at the time. Um, which I thought was really interesting because, like, as in, you kind of hear it and you're like, oh, it's very easy to be clean cut about yeah, its use it in that instance. Yeah. Um, so I guess, yeah, because yeah, even at the time, like, the fact that there was so much happening, and I'm, st I'm still on the fence, like, as in, I think the use of it is horrible, clearly, mm. and any use of it is horrible, but I can understand its use at the time because of how much was going on around it at the same time. You know what True, I mean? True, although Russia was, um, the, Japan was going to be invaded anyway and there was going to be a, an end, um, you know, to to the war at that point and America knew that. We have archives that show that and a lot suggests that they just wanted to drop the atomic bomb to see what happened and to use the situation to their advantage to see what, um, you know, to use the Japanese as guinea pigs. It seemed like a good idea. And I think, you know, even Russians, if you, right? yeah, exactly. And look, to if you can't convince people of that, then the easiest thing that I say to them is, well, what's the explanation for Nagasaki? If you're okay with them dropping the bomb on Hiroshima, give me the reason why they did that with Nagasaki. Oh, well, you know, they hadn't, they hadn't surrendered. I'm like, it was days, like, come on, you know? So it's, it's always a really difficult topic of conversation. I always talk about it when I, because I'm writing a book on the atomic bomb maidens who were women who were so horribly scarred in Hiroshima by the atomic bomb that a few of them were taken to America for plastic surgery. Like it's so, it's just so dodgy, isn't it? It's like, oh, we'll make up for everything. We'll give some of these women plastic surgery. That'll make their lives better. Won't that be great? Um, and so, yeah, so when I talk about it, 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 I love the way that it fires people up, even if they don't agree with me and even if I don't agree with them and we talk about whether the bomb should have been dropped and they're like, oh, it saved so many more lives to drop the bomb and you're like, no, it didn't. They could have just waited this amount of time. Um, it's it's still nice that it gets people upset in a way, you know, whether it's um, whatever their opinion is about it. It's still something that I think should upset people and it's good that it still does. 
Yeah, no, hundred percent. I think like the because people can fall into being like, oh, you're just being you're being a pacifist, whatever. Yeah, it's like, well, yeah, but exactly. It, I think maybe now that I'm thinking about it, even as you're saying that, I think probably my issue with it um, more than anything else is like the bomb almost lets everyone excuse the horrific firebombing that was happening constantly. Yeah, like, sure. as in they were already doing that True. basically every day. So like the bomb actually wasn't that much more of a thing than what they were already doing, which isn't a justification. It's just like, we should actually acknowledge just how bad All what they were it. doing for the five years was, not just too. this one moment. And that's yeah. part of like, I think my angle coming in, I'm like, yeah, cause like Dresden and stuff was maybe slightly less numbers. Yes. But although probably not much less than Nagasaki and that's, that was happening yeah. like, Except, time, so. I mean, and this is my coming from my angle. It's <laughs> yeah, like I love this. Yes, <laughs> how horrendous the death was after that. The cancer, the mm. kind of way you died. Like it's firebombing is horrible, and there are plenty of excruciating deaths. But God, seeing some of the skin hanging off and uh, people, you know, just living day to day, wondering if they're going to get cancer and die, and so many of them did, and then. Then in J- Japan, a whole range of issues where parents were um, trying to hide the effects if, if their children had been in any way exposed to the atomic bomb. You know, they they didn't want them to get married because they might have children that were deformed. And it sort of seems to be such a an ongoing problem, you know, and, and something that, you know, people checking their white blood cell counts every few months to see whether they had cancer, you know, years after um, the dropping of the bomb. That's just, it would be so hard to live like that. Yeah, that part is, uh, no, that, that that's definitely the clear-cut difference. Um, yeah, that's, yeah. I, just, I, I actually, um, I've been to Hiroshima as well and I, I went to that um, yeah. museum. The museum? It's, it's horrific, right? It's uh, like, whew, Yeah, full that's on. why I walked out of that being like, you dogs, American, everyone forever. And then it's taken me like a long time to come around to whilst not justifying it, realizing in the broader context, it's it's the end point of actually a very long period of horror. So almost like yeah, it's it not is. a one-off. So yeah. Yeah. I think Again, my husband couldn't justify. couldn't make it to the um the top floor where they, they've renovated it now, but the top floor used to have, you know, bits of skin and hair and teeth and all of that in the in the big kind of specimen jars. And my husband's <laughs> like, oh, this is so horrific, I can't deal with this. Um, yeah. And I said, yeah, but that's that's good. That's part of the thing. You know, I'm okay. I can look at it and try and analyse it and think about it and you're going to react emotionally and have to leave and both of those are a great way to, you know, to approach the museum. But, yeah, it's quite shocking for people that don't know that they have these um, confronting photos and confronting specimens. You know, it is it is a shock to stumble mm. upon it in the museum. Yeah, it's a few. <laughs> there's, one that's, there's two that stick out. One's like in terms of just for the poetic horror, yeah. like spot. It's actually not gruesome, but it was a kid's tricycle. Oh, yeah. That's like rusted and destroyed and blackened and metal. Yep. And you're like, it's just such a contrast of those two things, which is why they put it there. Yeah. And the other one was um, – the man who was waiting at a bank to go into a bank and there's just shadows all that's left. Yeah. They've taken the whole front entrance and put it there. And you're like, this Where poor guy was sitting there waiting for a bank. Yep. Yep. <laughs> like it's yeah. um it's it's amazing seeing the shadow and you can see mm. see the outline and, and see what happened. The other one that fits in with that is um the bento box. I always get really teary when I see that. It's a child's bento box and an, um the rice inside it is incinerated and whatever the food was on the other side, there's just <laughs> hardly any um, detail left. And her, his mother, I think, identified, you know, that it was him through this bento box that she found in, you know, what was remaining of his body and clothes and everything. And um, 
you know, it's a it's a pretty powerful image, but it's you know that kind of loss of innocence in lots of yeah. Ways. I think that that contrast exactly it yeah. helps you highlight it easier than just just a number. Um, so yeah. I guess to go so to, with with the books, obviously, um, yeah. it's kind of painting a picture of this stuff. And you mentioned it also goes into uh, Fukushima as well. It does, yeah. Um, which is guess is a different angle, or is it kind of the same? Is, well, is this of- is this being like is the book being like? Luxury in a way, or is it literally no. just snapshots of just these? No, moments? not at all. That's what I love about it. It's sort of um, it's repetitious, and it has this these this beautiful cadence to it. And it's just saying that things are different. It's saying this is this is what happened, and these are the horrific things, and we can't go back, and uh, we have to acknowledge that we're a different world. You know, since radiation is you know through the atomic bombs, you know, affected our lives, and specifically. Um, the Japanese and it's sort of mm. using little images and moments to try and say things are probably never going to be the same and we need to remember what's happened and and I guess you know it's it's sort of saying well yeah there's Hiroshima and that was a bombing and then we've got Nagasaki and the um there's one set in um Tokyo which was the fishing boat that was um that that got too close to the nuclear testing um, at Bikini Atoll and then there's the Fukushima. So they're all different ways that radiation is affected and um, and killed people and maimed people and all the rest of it and it's sort of saying this has kind of become a part of our lives in a way that it shouldn't and the way that we should think about the devastation and yet it sort of still keeps happening. But it's not, it's yeah, it's not didactic at all. It's um, It's sort of parts of it are kind of shocking but parts of it are quite beautiful as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if, if you're picking that as your favourite, I'm sure it's got, yeah, got a nice combination of both. Um, were you always – is this a topic that you find specifically interesting or was it this book itself? I, I noticed you seem to have a bit of a Japanese focus in your studies. Is that, I do, yeah. Um, um, is that, yeah, again, so forever, I've loved it. Yeah, so um, I, I studied the film Hiroshima Monomore and um, read the script and was haunted by it and started to become interested in going to Hiroshima and – experiencing sort of being there and the first time I went I was quite young I think I was in my early 20s and I had a university scholarship to go there and um, someone said to me tread carefully you're treading on bone dust and it sort of always stuck with me and I really do believe in the idea of genius loca you've got to go somewhere and you've got to walk on that earth to kind of understand exactly what it feels like to be there you know google maps is great but you know, it's it's not the same as as being there and understanding a place from from walking on its surface, if you like. Um, so I started to go many years and made a number of friends there, and as I said, started to speak to atomic bomb survivors or Habaksha about why they wanted to tell their stories and how they were getting older and how they were worrying that if their responses weren't written down or talked about, that they would be lost forever. And so I started to become interested in how I could help. And part of that was writing both critically and writing creatively about the atomic bomb. So yeah, I do, I do both. And I do, I am largely more interested in Hiroshima because it was the very first place, you know, that, that was bombed. Um, still, still interested um, in Nagasaki as well. But I guess my specialization, specialization is more around um, the city of Hiroshima. Yeah, I mean that's. Uh, I, I'm sure, I hope it's better now, but I do know that I th- 
that I feel like some people wouldn't even know about Nagasaki. <laughs> like no, no, I feel sorry for them um, because they always say that. Everyone talks about Hiroshima, but, you know, what about Nagasaki? Yeah, um, yeah it is it is tricky. Um, um, okay, so, so that's kind of been the focus, like, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Can you speak Japanese? Only conversational, basic conversational stuff. Um, I have done some Japanese translation, which has been fascinating. So it was part of a group um that went to japan and we met up with japanese poets and they translated our poems into japanese and we translated their poems into english with the help of a translator so we and and many of the japanese poets spoke um english but just didn't think that they had the kind of poetic skills in english to to translate them themselves so we worked in different ways in translation and it was you know really really fascinating to enter that world of translation as well yeah well that's because like it would be because of how much the language itself is part of the it's not just the words it's also just like how they sound and all that stuff it would be like yeah anyone who could translate like that that would that would be a complex task trying to capture you know it makes you think about your own words and your own poems in such different ways like i remember saying to one of the japanese poets oh you know the best word for this would be space you know we are in this space together um, for example, as one of the lines of her poems. And she's like, oh, space, space, that's like aliens. And I'm like, no, 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 that's outer space. And she's like, oh, no, space to us means like aliens. But I'm like, okay, different words have different meanings and we don't think about them and they think about them on a different level, you know, when you're translating. Um, yeah. So it, yeah, it made me think about all kinds of the meanings of all kinds of words and what, what we think of them and how they can be interpreted by other people. It was probably good for my own work. To yeah. think more about words. <laughs> That's right. You know, like you said, you can't even get through a few lines of a book without worrying about, oh, am I really looking at the alliteration here or what that image means? So now you've got even more of a challenge to get through a few I know. words. <laughs> it's like you just want to find more tasks for yourself. That's that. it. Like never get through a book. Just spend the whole time worried about the words and imagery. <laughs> That's yeah, that's true. Actually, you know, it's kind of two different kinds of reading, right? One is like in the story, and then the other one's actually yeah. sitting there and actually appreciating it. Um, yeah. So, like, I, I think I find it really interesting, and like, just you, you've loved this thing yeah. as in prose poetry, and you've just mm. done it mm-hmm. your whole life. Yeah, and I'm one of the few people that only write prose poetry. Um, a lot of people write prose poetry in addition to verse. Um, but no, it just doesn't grab me. Yeah. Like I just, (laughs) I haven't, I guess I have not tired of the form. I find there's so many things you can do with it. It's not, it's not the same all the time. I'm not just, you know, pushing out the same kind of little block of text. There's always challenges. There's always differences. There's always a new way to push the boundaries. And I think, you know, so for me, I'm still endlessly thrilled by it. Whereas other people might think, oh, I've done that. I've done a few prose poems. I understand what that is. And that's fine too. Um, but I'm still, I guess I'm still locked in the kind of wonder of it and what it, what it can do is still interesting to me. Mm. And is that, um, I guess now to go back to the, the inspiration for this stuff, was it, were you growing up in like a quite a poetic household, I guess? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I guess the my nana enjoyed poetry but she loved Banjo Patterson and Dorothea McKellar and she you know I guess when I was little I could recite the man from Snowy River which everyone thought was you know the greatest party trick when I was four or something (laughs) crazy like that but no um that's a lot more than me trust me (laughs) 
<laughs> it's a lot more poetic than most people by the sound of it already. Sure, yeah. sure. Um, but, yeah, I mean, certainly – it was probably my literature teacher that first got me interested. I think teachers can be really important if they're really wonderful people. Um, and so, yeah, it was probably not until I was in year nine, I had an English teacher called Mary Holmes. And then I had her again in year 11 and 12 for literature. And she really taught me the passion and love of poetry, which my family still don't have to this day. Like they're just not that interested. Even my husband's like, poetry I'm not reading that I'm like can't you read my latest book and he's like oh can't you just tell me what it's about instead <laughs> um but that's okay too all right is it your your husband's not in the, the writing field or anything like that he's a historian <laughs> sorry <laughs> <laughs> that is is he that's yeah. pretty funny actually so I think just quickly before uh, yeah. we get off I uh so you, you studied at Harvard as well is that right? Or? I was there as a year uh, for a year as a visiting scholar. So I had a um, Stephen Greenblatt, who's this incredible, amazing, famous um, scholar there as my sponsor. And so I spent a year there doing research. I was doing research into public intellectuals. I was pretty excited to interview some really amazing people while I was there um, earlier and sort of came back and talked to them. So I'd done some interviews prior to the year at Harvard with um, Noam Chomsky Camille Parlia and a range of people um, and Harold Bloom (laughs) and people that were really interesting to me. Wow, those Um, are some big names. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, it was was terrifying and wonderful. And so when I I put them together in a book of interviews and wanted to do more about public intellectuals um, as a result of doing those interviews and publishing those interviews and so then decided that it would be best to try and do it through Harvard and access their resources and have the intellectual community there to talk to about public intellectualism and all of that so sort of went through a application process and was lucky enough to be accepted for a year there I did attend and teach a few of the classes on Australian and did you know oh the Australian can talk about Australian poetry so that was that was fun that's Um, such a good claim to fame yeah (laughs) taught at Harvard yeah that's it um and spent you know great times researching in the library and um there's a there's lots of libraries there's the famous you know big widener library but there's also a great library called the Houghton and um they have like little specialist collections of things and um I found it you know really inspiring a really inspiring Mm. year um sort of living that way as well living with the research in my head and not having to deviate from it and multitask and do a million other things it was it was really satisfying just to you know live in it and be in it and and think about it all the time <laughs> yeah exactly and having the community there who are all like-minded and also yeah. ridiculously hardworking and passionate and all that stuff would just be yeah i could only imagine cool i guess we've jumped around a fair bit but i think that's sorry i probably made it so hard for you haven't i we've just like not followed a trajectory no that's great anyway. look it's it's probably like some forms of poetry i guess oh, okay together in a box <laughs> um exactly i'll actually one last thing quickly um yeah we, uh, you mentioned public intellectuals. Now, this is just me going, yeah. we might not even put this in the podcast to be honest. I'm just interested. Yeah, yeah, in no, whatever you like. Mm-hmm. When you say public intellectuals, you're talking about like basically anyone who's very smart, <laughs> who's like got a public persona. So there's certain people who, yeah, um, fall into that field who are like kind of more well known and less well known. Is yeah. that like, do you feel like that happens naturally or do you reckon they plan it or like what was the view when you're saying you were studying it? What was like the idea? Yeah. What were you looking into? I wanted to really see um, 
what their thoughts were about that kind of public arena, especially because my the public intellectuals that I interviewed were all attached to universities, like they all worked at universities. And I wanted to know how free they were in terms of what they were allowed to say, you know, that whole idea of freedom of speech, you know. Um, you know, Noam Chomsky says some pretty explosive things in the press, you know, is MIT going to kick him out for saying those things? Mm. So I was kind of interested to see what their public engagements were compared to sort of what their academic engagements were. And they all, you know, pretty universally said that their universities are incredibly supportive. And even if the university's view was not the same as their view, they appreciated the fact that, you know, that person was speaking out on an issue in the public um, and that they supported them despite whether they are more cons- had a, most of the universities there are, have a more kind of conservative frame, I think, than some of the things that the public intellectuals are saying. Um, but, yeah, it's sort of perhaps a little different here. I guess I was sort of trying to find the Australian public intellectuals and they're just sort of very different and a lot of them are historians um, rather than people, I guess. You know, I was really interested in Harold Bloom and Camille Paglia because, you know, they both come out of um, English departments and were both um, talking about literature and how literature can sort of change the world and mm. drawing on it in their discussions in the in the public arena. So they were kind of fascinating. And larger than life personalities. I think to be a public intellectual, you've got to have some of that. You've got to be compelling even if um, it's in a challenging kind of way. Yeah, yeah, People yeah. still got to want to listen to you even if they get fired up or they don't like what you've got to say or they do. Mm. And I guess, yeah, to on that point, though, I guess Australia, <laughs> it's, I don't know. Do we do, do Australians want intellectuals? I don't even know if they do. I think that's true. I mean, it's true, isn't it? Like I think, um, you know, we want sporting, you know, legends. Um, do we want public intellectuals? Not as much. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I, it's it's a tricky one it's it's certainly we have we have a number of them and we have had over time a number of them but um do we take them as seriously as other traditions probably not Hmm. that's a yeah no no think about it definitely i think there's there's that classic tall poppy thing so it's like public intellectual what you think you're so smart exactly (laughs) i I think then you see that in schools and that it's students don't want to i don't want to look smart miss and you're like oh why not oh i'll be you know People won't like me. No one will play with me if I, you know, if I'm smart. Uh, that's it's that's a heartbreaking thing to have to hear. That's, that's it. That's it. Uh, okay. Well, on that, that's a, a bit of a grim note to finish on. Yeah, no, we, uh, no, we no. should finish on a grim note. We're gonna make it. No, that's what this is about. That's We're it. spreading the word. We're getting more people that's out it. there. Sure. Like apparently, like this is a slight tangent, but apparently, like the Australia from a book point of view, um, like the top mm-hmm. selling book some years is like an adult coloring books. So. Yeah. That is <laughs> We've got a bit of work to do. We have, um, we have. But thank you uh, so much for being on and giving me the time um, to chat. It's been to all fun. This. Thank yeah, you yeah. for having me. Um, no, thank it's you. been great. Um, is there anyone should catch you anywhere? Anything you want to give a shout out to? Anything like that? Uh, I host a uh, American poetry reading series in Australia. It's on Sunday mornings called um, Lip Balm. And it started in America as a way of dealing with the pandemic. It was supposed to be the anodyne to the to the uh, pandemic and what was going on across the world. And it's been really fascinating doing that um, because I've encountered so many wonderful people from all over the world because everyone can Zoom. So that's been fun. So, yeah, check cool. it out. Lip I'll put a link to that. Org. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, great. Um, well, thanks very much. Um, yeah, we'll catch you around. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers. See ya. Bye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.